HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, recording here from HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And, you know, I've often wondered, what is it about salty snacks? What is it in particular about the potato chip? I know a lot of people have their guilty pleasures, whether it's chocolate or pretzels or uh, corn candy. For me, it's always been the potato chip. I really do have to stop myself. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've told myself, empty calories, we all know the routine. Every now and then, though, I just have to have some potato chips. Well, it was particularly difficult today as I was preparing for the show because I have someone to tell us all about where this started, what it is about this salty snack and how it all came to be. And in doing that preparation, believe me, it took a lot of willpower because all I wanted to do was go get a bag of potato chips. Today, I welcome with me Dirk Burhans, who has written um, a book recently called Crunch, the History of the Great American Potato Chip. So we're going to find out all about the beginnings of this great American snack, or at least what we know about it, what he can tell us about it. Welcome, Dirk. Hi, Linda. <laughs> um, you know, there are, I know there are a lot of stories that surround the beginnings of the potato chip, and it really is a, a, an, American, an American snack, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's uniquely American. Mm-hmm. And what I know there are all sorts of tales of, you know, sometimes someone says, oh, it was because someone ordered crispy potatoes. Another person said, oh, no, it was an accident in the fryer. Take us back to the beginning. What, where did all of this start? Oh, boy. You know, it's, it's been so hard to untangle all the myths around this, but we know for sure it started in Saratoga Springs, New York. Um, the, the story that has gone around for a long time is that a, a chef named George Crum was working at one of the upscale resorts there, 
and that a rich patron uh, protested that his fried potatoes weren't thin enough, and he had uh, George Crumb, the chef, had them slice them super thin and gave them back and uh, to him, see if this makes him happy, and the guy loved it and ordered more. Hmm. And uh, that story has since been kind of debunked. Um, uh, this, the fellow George Crumb was a... Uh, part Native American chef, a very colorful, outspoken guy, but they really don't think that this story ha- happened as as uh, as was stated that way. And, and in fact, some variations of that story even had Cornelius Vanderbilt as the rich person who sent the chips back. Right, well, Saratoga Springs was quite the uh, the in place, the spa, and people, wealthy people, going to take the waters back in the late 1800s. I mean, that was well. Yes, it, yes, it was. And the thing about potato chips, when you think about it, the idea of making a super thin fried potato and putting it it in oil is nothing that none of us couldn't do on our own. Um, And so it's it's somewhat likely that, you know, a number of different people over time had something like a potato chip in their own kitchen. The thing about Saratoga Springs is when it caught on there, it stayed there because uh, in those days before... um, uh, the days of air conditioning, the wealthy New Yorkers went up to Saratoga Springs. So um, when they were served in the kitchens there, they really caught on and they radiated outward from there. We're talking 1850s, 18, pretty much. Yeah, 1850s. Hmm. And, and they were served in uh, at tables, in bowls, the way you might get um, corn chips at a Mexican restaurant today. They were served hot. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a hot potato chip right out of the fryer. Mm. You know, it's funny because, yeah. you know, we we do see some of that returning, a lot of people making their own homemade chips, or you go to, you know, particular restaurants, you get these, these mm. um, you know, artisanal-type chips. But the, uh, the chip, when it started, it it had a long journey, and it really did quite develop into quite a big business. Um, now, you come from, Dirk comes from Ohio, which um, we will talk about later, is where the majority of the potatoes are grown. Um, and you have, I mean, you have a degree in, bio, a PhD in biology. So as far as potatoes and frying and temperatures and things, this must have been caught on some, some interest to you into how this whole thing developed into big business. Well, uh, I try not to tell too many people about my Ph.D., and, and if you must know, it, it's, in, it's in avian ecology. I worked on birds for my Ph.D., so this has nothing to do with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it is an interesting story, and um, when you think about it, you know, it's one thing to serve something up hot right out of the oven in a restaurant, and it's another thing to take that thing into packaging and distribute it and sell it in stores, and it really was, it, it took quite a long time, really until the early 1900s, before potato chips really became something like a retail business, and even then it was still very much in its infancy. Well, so. and a lot of these people who were ma- started making them and, and trying to make it big business, were they were called chippers, is that correct? Oh, yeah, we call, they still call them chippers today. They yes. still do. Um, yeah. Take us, tell me a little bit of the chronology of, of how they rose, how, they, how these potato chips rose to be such an iconic American snack. Well, um, like I said, we are, we're starting in Saratoga Springs, ground zero for the potato chip, 1853, before the Civil War, before baseball. And um, they're being served at, with dinner 
hot out of the oven. Um, by the 1880s, um, you start to find them spreading outward from New York and outward from New England, um, and small businesses selling them at the farmer's markets. There is a company uh, today that still operates in Pennsylvania called Goods Potato Chips, and one branch of that company started in 1886. It's the oldest extant potato chip company that I know of that's still operating since 1886, and they Goods sold their chips at farmer's markets. And other people got that same idea. And so typically, you know, grandma might cook them in the kitchen. Um, when business started to get a little bigger, they might get a few fryers going in the garage or in a shed and take it from there. They'd, be, they'd pack them up in, in paper bags. They'd staple them with clothespins and clips and staples and things like that. Hmm. And as you can imagine, on a really humid day, that's not going to be very fresh after a no, few hours. Not at all, right. So we go from there to farmer's markets uh, into the early 1900s. More and more, they start to get a little bit of distribution, especially in Cleveland. We know about some, there's a big hub of the chip industry, Cleveland, Ohio. They start spreading out their, they start getting their distribution systems. They start getting trucks that are taking chips around. It's still very much something that's sold at the, at, at, uh, at the counter, the same place, the same way you might get bubble gum or penny candies, chip, there'd be a, or popcorn, there'd be a, There'd be a glass case, and the and the the clerk would spoon out a bunch of chips into a paper bag and give you the potato chips like that. Hmm. So again, there's there's problems with keeping them fresh. Um, in 1926, in California, a lady named Laura Scudder got the idea: we can, you know, maybe there's a way we can freshen these these chips up. So she asked some of the ladies who were doing the bagging in her plant to put some little tiny slips of wax paper at the neck of the bag and fill them at night when they go home and, and iron them shut. And that was Laura Scudder, more or less, by doing that, invented the, the first step to modern packaging. They actually had a wax bag, and it was sealed shut. Hmm. And uh, things kind of took off from there. They came up with uh, true wax paper bags. They came up with plasticine. And by these advances in uh, packaging, they were able to come up with packages where they could print their logos on the package, and you just get this explosion by the 1930s of incredible logos and uh, colors and zigzags and polka dots, all kinds of wild and crazy designs. Um, And I've got, in my book, I've got... uh, a section of color plates where you can see some of these old chip bags. They're really something else. They're I have really to tell you, I, and I have the book open to that page right now, and and they're 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 terrific. They're like all these Art Deco posters. I mean, they're they're super colorful, and you know the with the um, the writing, and it's all just all about potato chips. It's great. Yeah. What were some of the early big names that that well, I don't know that anyone would recognize, um, but some of the the big names and producers. Oh man, you know that's that's the interesting thing about it. Um, a lot of these businesses started up, particularly in the 1930s. A lot of them during the Depression, when men were out of work, they didn't know what to do, so they resorted. They kind of took a chance and, and started something new. Um, 
Now I know from we, the, uh, the 50s and 60s there were you know Jays and and um, Seifert's right. and you know uh, chips like that. I remember those and Charles yeah. chips, which would deliver well, d- would deliver weekly to your door, which was yes, a great big. A lot can. of people yeah. remember Charles chips, and a yeah. lot of people remember the Charles tins. Jays started in uh, Chicago, I believe, in the 1920s. Leonard Jap uh, Sr., who started the company, it was originally called Jap's Potato Chips. Um, he started Jay's, and he, he ran uh, potato chips to Al Capone's speakeasies in the 1920s and 30s. Mm. Um, uh, let's see, we've got companies like Utz, who's, who are big today in Pennsylvania, right. who have HERS. Um, and a lot of these companies are still in business. A lot of them bit the dust. Seifert's that you mentioned, they were in Ohio, Indiana. Um, they're no longer with us. Scudder's uh, was throughout California. A lot of people who grew up in the 50s, 60s remember uh, Scudder's, and they are no longer in business under that name. So um, we have this explosion of these wonderful, interesting regional chip companies with regional flavors, some of them cooking in lard, some cooking in peanut oil, some cooking it in, in uh, later on uh, partially hydrogenated soybean oil. Different tastes, different textures, different kinds of packaging. We're ha- we have hundreds of these ch- chip companies. It's just, I mean, nobody really knows how many there are. At one time, the Snack Food uh, Association, which is kind of like the chippers industry organization, Snack Food Association, had something like 400 members. But those were just the ones who chose to join the Snack Food Association. That leaves out what were probably hundreds, maybe could be a 1,000 of other chippers all around the country. When I went... When I did my book tour back in uh, several years ago, I went back to Southeast Ohio, uh, where I'm from, and I gave a little talk in my library. And the the paper wrote up the talk and had a little mention of my book. Of my book. And this is a small town, Athens, Ohio. It's got a university, but it's a small city. It's about twenty thousand, twenty five thousand people. Well, I got calls after the talk and after the newspaper article. I got calls and emails, and come to find out there were three chip companies in this little town that I didn't even know about (laughs) that had existed in the 40s and 50s. So that's the kind of situation we have where almost every town in America, or every small city at least, had its own chip company. So they really did have regional flavors, regional specialties. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that's still with us somewhat today. If, you know... We live in such a homogenized area, uh, homogenized era, food-wise. When you think about it, you go anywhere in the country, and there's an Olive Garden, right? Mm-hmm. You go anywhere in the country, and you can have, you know, if you don't want to take any risks, you can eat at a national chain where the food's going to be reliable, but it's going to be reliably the same in California as it was back in New Jersey. And if you like that, that's great. But for some of us who really like regional food and regional flavors, you know, some of this is is disappointing. Indeed. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> no, indeed, absolutely. I mean, you know, right, you have the same bag of potato chips on every supermarket shelf across the country. Not too interesting. Uh, no, it, not to me it's not. Um, but... And so we've lost a lot of this regional diversity, and it's not just in potato chips. And it's in it's in everything. You, it's in soda pop. It's in it's in candy. It's in uh, it, almost anything you can think about. We've lost this, and it's because of conso- corporate consolidation. It's because of the media. It's, it's for a lot of different reasons. I don't know that. Uh, certainly, I can't point to any one thing. Is but there the fascinating? 
Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Fascinating thing is. Well, the fascinating thing to me is that even, even with that, even with all this consolidation, homogenization, you can still go to parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio today and find an incredible number of locally or at least regionally made chip brands. Hmm. You're not going to find anywhere else unless you order them online. Right. Well, and, I, and I think we're seeing that more and more um, over the years, that this whole, you know, everything gone full circle. As I said before, you know, the artisanal brands and, um, yes. you know, small producers and, you know, locally made producers. But tell me, back to the big names, was there anyone in particular that we would credit with, let's say, inventing the big chip machine? Or is there a, like a chipper slicer fryer machine that that made all this possible oh that's a great question well um what people know today is kettle chips um and and everybody nowadays has had had a, had a kettle chip it's that hard bite thick kind of crunchy chip that was the original type of potato chip and there's something about that process of cooking it in a fryer for a discrete period of time say three five seven minutes that makes that hard bite chip and that was the way chips were made until, uh, in, really until 1929. Um, they, would, they would take a bunch of potatoes, they'd have their automatic peeler, they'd put them in the fryer, and they'd pull them out. Well, to contrast that with the people making things like pretzels, they come up with a machine to make pretzels, and they just crank them out all day long. They go down the assembly line, they go into the oil, and they come back out on the other end. In 1929, a guy named Mr. Ferry came along, F-E-R-R-Y, and he makes something called a continuous cooker. And that just essentially allows you to dump your potatoes at one end, run them through the washer, run them through the peeler, run them through the slicer, and just load them onto this continuous continuous cooker and through a system of, of paddles and so forth. It just runs them down the line. And you can make, pota- as long as you can bring in a truck in at one end with potatoes, you can make potato chips all day long all night long. Wow. And so that, in 1929, that really, really changed things. It revolutionized the industry. I mean, well, actually, yeah. it gave the industry a start. Um, yeah, you can produce a lot more potato chips than in your little kitchen and fry pan. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about what actually goes in that bag of potato chips, or in the fryer, I should say, um, right after we take a short break. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, we're back, and I am talking with Dirk Burhans, and he has written a book called Crunch, The History of the Great American Potato Chip. And Dirk, I wanted to ask you, in the book, you you spoke quite a bit about different different varieties of potatoes and, and what really is the best kind of potato to make a chip. Um, we all know that a baking potato is, you know, we know to buy the Idaho potatoes to bake or a Yukon Gold to mash, but tell us a little bit about what... Um, how what what went into that, and how they found out what what was the best potato to chip? Oh, um, you know this, and it, it's continually changing as well. The problem with potatoes, when you think about it, is you know they're mostly water, and if you're going to make potato chips and you lose something like eighty percent of the potato into water after you fry it, that's not great. 
So what the potato chippers had to figure out how to do was to grow varieties of potatoes that have relatively low water content and higher uh, potato content. And over the years, they've done this. And these have names like Snowden is the, is the name of the uh, potato that's uh, grown for, uh, to st- for winter storage. Um, oh, man, I can't remember all the names, but they have all kinds of varieties. No, I'm sure. And these, these varieties, will, uh, I've been told that they will t- typically last for 10 or 12 years, and then there's something about the nature of the potato that the variety itself will kind of peter out, and the, and the growers will come up with new varieties. Hmm. So they're looking at these high specific gravity, high uh, dry matter content potatoes to use for chipping. And, uh, you know, like any farmer, they have a lot of things to contend with. They have to, get, uh, um, they have to get the right amount of water, the right amount of sunshine. They have all kinds of dry rot problems, all kinds of uh, – it, it just – the list goes on and on of, of the problems that these guys have to deal with. And it's real – you know, I visited one of these growers in Ohio, and they've really got their hands full, but in, in a good year – and even on a so-so year, they can come up with plenty of chipping potatoes for most of the plants. Hmm. Well, now, you so. you mentioned something about, you know, dry rot, and I was thinking about uh, wet rot. Anyone who's kept a bag of potatoes in their kitchen knows that, you know, every now and then there's a rotten potato in there. There must, I mean, that must be a, a tough thing to deal with as well, keeping the temperature just right of the potatoes in storage. Yeah, they have to, they have to keep the temperature just right, and it actually has to be... It has to be fairly cool, and it's interesting when you go back to the origins of the potato, they, they originate in cool climates of what are today Peru and Bolivia. Right, up in the mountains. Um, right? so, yeah, yeah, exactly, up in the mountains, below the frost line or more or less at the frost line and below, but really they, they handle those cool temperatures pretty well. Um, but it's a trick because you want, you, know, you want them to grow during the hot weather, but you don't want them to get too hot. And then if you get them too cool, then they have other problems, you know. And I can't, I can't, I can't give you all the exact details about the starches and sugars and so forth. But it's it's tricky the way they have to juggle it all. Now, a lot of people will uh, complain about they'll have a nice bag of chips and there'll be one brown chip in the middle of the bag, and they'll say, "Ooh, I got a burnt potato chip." <laughs> well. <laughs> it's not a burnt potato chip. It's actually a potato chip that's got too much sugar in it. Um, and some people like those, but most people, you know, they call it a burnt potato chip. But it's actually a potato chip. You think, well, sugar, that, that would be good, but it, it's, it's really not what most chippers want. But, you know, that's another, one, another thing about the, the diversity in chips. There's actually one company in Pennsylvania called K&Ray's, and they have made a business out of selling brown potato chips. Right. They take these high-sugar potatoes, and they crank out a brown potato chip, and, and their customers are nuts for it, and it's printed <laughs> in a brown bag and everything. I, there, and, was a, uh, there was a more national brand that did that, too, I think. And I, I happen to be one of those who loves to find the dark chip in the bag. <laughs> but I guess it's the <laughs> sugar content. Who knows? And, there's yeah, there was a, a larger chain company, a larger um, uh, producer that well, did the same thing, right? Well, Kettle Brand is a, is a national company, and they, they uh, appeal to natural food stores, natural food aisle. You can get it in most grocery stores, certainly in the natural food stores. Kettle Brand, and they use a high-sugar content potato. Um, and what he talks about is, you know, the sugar is a, is a good thing and a bad thing. It gives us a, a unique flow, flavor profile, 
But, you know, because of that high sugar, it's hard to manage it. It's right on the cusp of something that we can manage, you know. Mm. But they, have, they make a great uh, potato chip, and, you know, there's hardly, I mean, that, if I had to list the top six favorites, that would be one of mine. Interesting. They do a great job with that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, then a lot of things started to happen to the potato chip. They got crinkly. They got flavorings sprinkled on them and added to them. This, the, sometimes it was a, you know, a good thing, and then other times it just sort of, expired very quickly and then there were those pringles which weren't even chips anyway they were just you know, <laughs> um i mean how, what kind of in, this must have had a was this a good impact on the industry or i mean you know i don't know but well what would you say the chippers oh gosh i'm gonna have to look back through my book to figure out the dates but the pringles came along well in the in the late 60s and early 70s and the chippers just were up in arms about it first of all Pringles put on their label that it was a potato chip. Well, the Snack Food Association said, Association said, no, it's not a potato chip. A potato chip is a piece of potato fried in oil. These are, this is, you know, potato matter. It's, it's a manufactured food. Um, and so they eventually worked all that out. And, and when the, the basic upshot is, of it is that when Pringles came out, it created a lot of controversy. But in the end, things settled down and and uh, it, it, if anything, it, it increased the interest and the business in the potato chip industry overall. Like they say, competition's <clears throat> often a good thing. <laughs> so, That's yeah. right. You yeah. kind of all boats ride rise with the tide, kind of thing. Right. And and the, the other thing to keep in mind through this whole period, and we're talking early '60s into late '60s, '70s, is that Herman Lay had created the first nationally national potato chip. He had started out in a different business, went out around buying up potato chip plants when, uh, during the Depression or in the aftermath of the Depression, and started this, this business. And by 1965 or so, he had uh, Lay's potato chips distributed nationally throughout the country. So all through this period in the, in the 60s and 70s, we're seeing um, consolidation and, uh, and bigger and bigger players coming into, into the industry, and that's about when Pringles hit. Uh-huh. Well, what about um, preservatives or anything else added to chips? I mean, like a lot of these flavorings had, must have had some preservatives in them as well. You know, you're kind of asking the wrong guy. Because okay. Right. No, <laughs> I'll that's, tell you that, why. That was I <laughs> am very much a, um, I'm very much a, uh, uh, a salted chip guy. I don't go in too much for the flavors. The traditionalist. <laughs> Yes, uh, just salt and oil. Um, but most chips don't have a lot in the way of preservatives. If you look at the flavorings, there's some pretty complicated um, names for some of those flavorings that go in. But uh, now I, I could be wrong here, but I don't think there's a lot of preservatives involved with mm-hmm. most potato chips. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know um, that you know, now we're seeing, it's funny because there's a new. You know, I think a lot of people shunned some of the flavors and said, well, other other than barbecue potato chips. Um, and they said, no, just give me the straight, you know, traditional potato chip. Now, in some of the newer brands, the artisanal, the small batch potato chips, we're seeing some interesting things come out, you know, cracked pepper, rosemary, um, uh, uh, salt and vinegar. That, was, that became a big one, dill pickle. Um, people seem to be liking these flavors and then i think it's increasing a lot of the sales um even though it's well, the basic chip uh-huh. yeah and that's really where the growth in the industry has been in the past uh, five ten years 
is in the flavoring. Well, number one, in, in kettle chips, that hard bite, small batch potato chip that we talked about. And number two, in, in the really experimental flavors. Mm-hmm. And they've, the flavors have gotten very hot. And you have these small, uh, like you say, artisanal small batch companies, uh, Route 11 uh, in Virginia, Zaps in Louisiana, coming up with these really uh, wacky uh, flavors and um, packaging designs to go along with it. Zaps has this flavor called Voodoo Gumbo. And, I, you know, I say that I like a plain classic salted potato chip. But Voodoo Gumbo is, is one place where I make an exception. It is the best flavored chip I've ever had. It, 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 I don't know what it is about it. It's, it's a hot chip. It's got something tomatoey in it. Um, they just, and the, the package is a knockout package, but um, it is something else. Yeah. So that's really where the growth and in, in the interest in the industry has been. And um, these, the small chippers like Route 11 and Zaps and, and some of these other uh, artisanal kinds of companies have, they took the lead on this, I want to say, about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. Um, and, and the big companies have had to catch up. Um, and, and Lay's is finding that kettle chips are an increasingly bigger and bigger part of its, uh, of its output. And Lay's has gotten very experimental with their chips as well. They came out with this summer with, a, uh, with an ad campaign uh, that <laughs> something about pick, pick your favorite chip, and they've got a, uh, what is it, they've got a... Um, a cappuccino-flavored chip, <laughs> and they've got a wasabi and ginger kettle chip, and they've got a mango salsa chip, and I, I tried a couple of them. And, uh, I don't know about cappuccino on a potato chip. It was interesting. It was different, but um, well, I don't, I don't uh, know if that one's going to win. They at least did not come under the scrutiny of a lot of health claims, whereas the oil, the fats, the you know the um, the trans fats did, and of course then we went through the era of the um, uh, of the the, the uh, what is it the fake oil low carb diet the, and all yes, that right and the oleanta and the is it only when is it not oleanta the um, the oils that olestra olestra I'm sorry olestra, olestra right right trying to keep the fats down um, right. the snack well and you and you mentioned Lay's I mean and then of course it became this huge huge industry and they bought out the Fritos and they became Frito Lay and I think ultimately they were bought by PepsiCo were they not but yeah um, but the but the snack industry has um, continually come under fire from with health claims and obviously yes we all know it's empty calories in a bag of potato chips you know by the time you fry it out and put a bunch of salt on it they are addicting right. however they do taste good uh, but back they they kind of abandoned all those efforts to take the fats out and all the lays did do a baked potato chip right um, right and went back to the the thing that tasted the best and you know it, and they are you know the 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 soda industry was just in the paper today you know there's a new um alliance for you know health health alliance and they're trying to reduce the calories in in sodas and so chips and chips and soda are always under fire for being not a healthy choice in food, and certainly they're not. But every now and then, as I said at the top of the show, every now and then you just have to give in to that, to that desire and have a salty treat. And of course, salt and and drinking, they'll always be a good bar snack. I mean, you'll always find them in bars. And did that did that help their popularity initially? Did it not? That helped. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
it's it's interesting because um, one of the interesting business aspects of potato chips is people might remember Eagle Snacks and Eagle brand potato chips came around in the late 70s into the 80s. And um, they Eagle was started by Anheuser-Busch, the brewery. Huh. And they thought, well, what what better combination can you have than beer and, than beer and potato chips? Right. And they didn't get they didn't get into anti, any antitrust uh, problems because of that, but they could have. It was for whatever reason it was overlooked at the time. But yeah, they're a natural combination. And so what what Eagle would do was Eagle contracted with various airlines to uh, distribute Eagle potato chips for free on the airline. So when you you're on your plane flight and you want to have a beer, you get a bag of potato chips with it. Right. Yeah, they have all kinds of snacks. Yeah. Eagle pretzels and, and, and the, whole, right. the whole salty snack food industry. It's just huge. And you do such a great job of, of streamlining the information on potato chip. And I did notice, too, that there is a resurgence in the Saratoga name. Saratoga, whether it, you know, we know that it started, you say, as you say, you know it started somewhere around there. So that's making, um, uh, showing once again in a lot of brands that are using that name, Saratoga, the original yes, Saratoga uh-huh. chip. Yeah, that's right. right. Well, thank you so much, Dirk. You, again, the name of the book is Crunch. A History of the Great American Potato Chip. And Dirk Burhans has been my guest. Dirk, thank you so much for sharing your information with us. And uh, and I urge people, if they want to know more, there's a lot to be found out here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.